Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Today's guest is someone I discovered on Instagram for being super raw, vulnerable, and honest about her challenges with endometriosis. Laura Parker shares her story on Instagram and through her job at BuzzFeed.com. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So happy to have you here. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Yes. So my name is Laura Parker. I'm 28 years old. I'm the deputy director for BuzzFeed.com, the website. I have a book coming out next year in 2020 called Vagina Problems. And I grew up in a very small town in Indiana, and I now live in Los Angeles. And what brought you to LA? I came here about six years ago as an intern for BuzzFeed. So I just stayed and never left. Oh, that's amazing. So you've only been at BuzzFeed work-wise. Yes, I worked at like a public relations firm for a little bit after college before moving out here. It was in Indianapolis, but it didn't really count. I don't know. I felt like a glorified intern. Not that there is anything wrong with that, but it didn't feel (laughs) like a real job. So let's get right into it. Walk us through your journey to get diagnosed with endometriosis, which I know took over five years for you to get to. Yes. So it started with a bunch of symptoms that I had that didn't really make sense to me. Like um, I kept getting diagnosed with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And then, you know, I had really painful periods from about the time they started up until present day. And then, you know, I just had like a constant abdominal blow and trouble eating. And then I would pass out from pain when running, like abdominal pain. So none of these like really added up to me. And so like I saw like a gastroenterologist, I saw my gynecologist, I saw like my general practitioner and pretty much all of them were just like, nothing is actually wrong with you. You're just being dramatic. So no, that's it. That's it. Like just writing you off. It was like very much writing me off. I mean, they were like, take birth control or like take ibuprofen, like duh, like take ibuprofen. I didn't need to come here for you to tell me that. Right. Like, I hate that. I'm like, oh, the over the counter medicine. Thank you so much for your wisdom. But Um, no one was giving you any sort of feedback of, you know, I can't help you, but maybe you should see this doctor. No, definitely not. They were very much just like, sorry, I don't know what's wrong with you. And it sounds like you're just making it up. So this happened for several years. And then when I was in college, Um, And I started to experiment more sexually, I realized that penetration was excruciating for me. And that is when I started to Google around. And weirdly, one of the things that I Googled was pain when running, like severe abdominal pain. And the word endometriosis came up. And I started reading about it. And I was like, holy shit, I have every single one of these symptoms. So then I took it to a new gynecologist and was like, hey, I think I have this. And um, to get diagnosed with it, you have to have a surgery. That's like the true way of finding out whether or not you have it. Okay. Yeah. So it's super inaccessible. And it's like, that's why it's kind of confusing because you literally have to have surgery. Um, And this is still the case. I mean, you were diagnosed when? 2012. And yes. And this is still the case that you would have to have surgery. 
Yes. Wow. Okay. And what does the surgery entail? So the problem is that there are two surgeries and most OBGYNs and like a lot of doctors do the one that's called ablation, which means that they go in and they burn out the endometriosis tissue that they find. But the other surgery, which is called excision, which is where they go in and cut it out at the root, is actually considered the gold star treatment for endometriosis. But it requires a skill that most doctors just don't have. It's much more advanced. So I had the ablation surgery in 2012. And, you know, it's been disproven since then. It's sort of been like most doctors in the field who are like good and know what they're talking about are like, yeah, the ablation surgery is essentially useless, like outside of giving you a diagnosis, it doesn't actually remove the endometriosis, it only removes the top layer. But um, I didn't know any of this at the time, most people don't. uh, And it's not really like, you know, it shouldn't really be on us to know all of that. Absolutely not. You may be the expert in your health, but you're not the expert in medical treatments and and surgeries. So how did you decide that you would go forward with having the surgery? By this time, I was just so ready to a know what was going on with my body. And since that was the only way I was like, sure, sign me the hell up and be like, I really thought that this surgery would cure me. Like I thought if I had it, I mean, I don't know, I laugh about it now, but it's really not funny. Like, you know, I, I really believed that after the surgery, I would feel better. And I was and wrong. Did doctors but... tell you that? Oh, yeah, my doctor was for sure like, this is going to help you so much. This is what you do. Like, He essentially made it seem like this was a cure when in fact, endometriosis does not have a cure, excision surgery or not. Like no matter if you're doing the gold star treatment, it still is incurable to this day. So you had this surgery and what happened from there? I had the surgery. uh, I immediately went, not immediately, like two weeks later, I went to study abroad in Australia. I was in college at the time. And during my time in Australia, my pain went from what I thought was terrible to like excruciating, like... I thought sex was painful before it went to like completely impossible, but other things started happening. Like my vagina, my vulva, it hurt all of the time, burning, singing. I couldn't wear jeans. I could barely wear underwear. I couldn't sit down and the bloating and the painful abdomen feeling that I had had prior to surgery that I thought was terrible increased like 27 times over. So everything just got way worse. And that's you know, I was really confused because I was like, uh, I thought I got rid of this. And when was this that you had the surgery? 2012. Oh, okay. So at what point do they tell you, like, yes, you have endometriosis, and we think that you should do XYZ? I mean, did they think that the surgery was just the answer? And that's it? You're done? Yeah, 100%. He my doctor at the time was like, if you do have endometriosis, I'll remove it during the surgery, aka burning it off, which we know now doesn't work. And then afterward, he just put me on birth control and was like, you should be good to go. But that's really not how it works. And of course, I know that now. But looking back, I had no clue. So what's happened since 2012 for you? I'm sure a lot. <laughs> yes, I'm like, how much time do you have? No. Um, you know, I somehow managed to graduate from college despite being severely depressed uh, second semester of my senior year due to my chronic pain. I ended up at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where they diagnosed me with pelvic floor dysfunction, vulvodynia, vaginismus, sort of just like everything that you can have wrong with your pelvic floor. I've pretty much been diagnosed with at this point. Then I moved to Los Angeles, started seeing a wide breadth of doctors, 
started learning more about endometriosis, learned that it actually doesn't have a cure, learned about the different surgeries. And now I have a book coming out next year about it. I talk about it regularly, sort of something that I write about all the time. And I'm also getting ready to have excision surgery in January, which will be my first time having that surgery. And what's the deal with this surgery? What's the purpose of it? So the excision surgery is to go in and actually remove the endometriosis, like by physically cutting it out. And I'm seeing one of the top surgeons in America. There are so few surgeons that do this surgery and do it well that I can name all of them. So they're really few and far between. And this one happened to move to Los Angeles like a year or two ago after being in Manhattan exclusively prior to that. So, you know, I've heard great things about her. I decided in the last year as my pain has gotten worse and I've like exhausted all of the options that I feel that I had that I need to pursue this because as it stands, I'm not able to work a full 40 hours a week and it's only getting worse. So I'm trying to see if this surgery can at least give me part of my life back. Yeah, absolutely. So how are you managing the emotions around having the surgery and the anticipation? You know, it's, it's day by day. It's a lot. I'm trying to meditate daily. I have a therapist that I've been seeing for four plus years now who specializes in chronic pain, but she actually just went on maternity leave like this week. Yeah, not great. I'm very happy for her, but I'm like, this is the worst possible time, but she's very great. And she's like, you know, I'll still talk to you. I understand. So I'm just trying to like take it one day at a time because, you know, that's all you can do really. And I'm trying to prepare my body for the surgery. So I'm going to pelvic floor physical therapy twice a week. I'm seeing a pain specialist. I'm getting tested for SIBO, just doing like all of these things to make sure that the outcome is as good as it can possibly be. Sounds like the right move. So you mentioned work. How has your job handled this situation? Because you've been dealing with this as long as you've been at this job? Yes. So it's sort of weird because when I started, my symptoms were severe, but looking back on it now, I'm like, uh, they weren't really that severe because I was still able to go to work for the most part. And then I just sort of started creating content around it. And now I'm at the point where like a large portion of my job over the past six years has for one reason or another been to create content around my illnesses. And it just sort of happened organically. So my job and the people that I work with and my bosses, I mean, they're all very aware of my situation. So there's really no room for them to be like, I don't get it or I don't understand because it's like, oh, here's 27 videos I've created about it. What do you mean you don't understand? Um, So they're very understanding and, you know, they understand that I have to go to these appointments and that I have to do this and I have to take this time. Otherwise, you know, it's only going to get worse. And I think, you know, from a company perspective, in terms of like, what is good for them, they would want me to do something that's going to get me better versus just continually getting worse. Yeah. So how did you decide to start sharing? And what was that first thing that you did? The first thing I ever shared that feels like significant to me was an essay that I published for BuzzFeed called Living My Life Without Sex. And it was in 2014. I had just been hired full-time as a staff writer for my internship. And it felt like I was living with this huge secret. Like I was living a lie. I don't know. It's very weird to think about now, but like no one in my life really knew the pain that I was dealing with and like the way that it was making me feel emotionally and mentally about myself, especially the fact that as a straight woman, 
I couldn't have penetrative sex. And at the time, I honestly couldn't even orgasm without excruciating pain. So sex of any kind was pretty much off the table for me. And um, I was 22, 23 years old at the time. So it was the time of my life where I felt like, you know, I was supposed to be out there having fun, dating, and I wasn't able to. And it was eating me alive inside. Like my close friends didn't know, my family didn't know, et cetera. So, you know, the way that I had always talked about it or like discussed it at all had been writing about it. I was unable to like say the words out loud. So I just started writing and this essay came about and I was my boss at the time and I was like, I want to publish this. And I think I didn't think about like that my English teacher might read it or like that my next door neighbor might read it. I just like wanted it off my chest. It felt like so heavy. And then I published it and I started getting all of these emails and started getting like the comments on the article of people who had similar conditions. And, you know, looking back now, I'm like, of course, you weren't the only one living with this. But when you're in it, when you're deep in it, and no one can give you any answers, and you can't talk about it with your friends, because you're too embarrassed, and your gynecologist is telling you you have like STDs or whatever. It's so isolating. So once I started realizing that other people were living with this, it just sort of became like my mission to make it something that wasn't so stigmatized. Because I really don't think it should be like I say my vagina hurts the same way that I say I have a headache now. Like it is what it is to me. And it feels it just feels natural to talk about it now. I think it's because I just couldn't for so long. And now I'm like, whatever, I'm here. I'm talking about my vagina. Who the hell cares? I'm sitting here shaking my head like crazy of totally relating to you on the concept of not sharing with anyone. Because as I told you before we started recording, I spent 27 years of my life not sharing anything about my health with anybody except basically my mom. And it was one of those things where I didn't realize how much of a burden it was because I wasn't as affected as you are at that point. And it wasn't affecting my day to day so much that it didn't feel like a burden. But once I started to share and my first thing was also a written piece, then I realized that number one, as you said, I was not alone. And there were plenty of other people going through stuff, even though it was different stuff. And my condition is rare. But number two, that I did feel like there was a burden that had been placed on myself. And I was able to strip down this layer, which is so, so necessary. And I love so much that you realized that there's such a stupid stigma around this topic. And that just because it's your vagina, and because it's sex and things like that, that we shouldn't be talking about it. So why do you feel the responsibility to have that voice and put that content out there to discuss this topic? Well, at this point, I have the platform. You know, I've, I've worked at BuzzFeed.com for almost six years now. So that's one platform. And then I started talking about it on Instagram. And just, I feel like it's my responsibility, not only because I want to share it, but because it doesn't affect me. It's not going to affect my job or my chances of getting another job after this if I talk about my vagina or if I talk about painful sex or endometriosis or my surgeries or whatever. Whereas other people, you know, they don't have that privilege. A lot of people can't open up and say, you know what, I'm in pain all of the time and I need to smoke weed every day or like whatever it may be for various different reasons, whether it's their career or people in their life who aren't as understanding. Like I just wanted to create a space because that's what I needed when I was younger, so desperately. And so I wanted to give people that. And I guess I just had the opportunity to do so. So I was like, well, why the hell wouldn't I? It seems almost irresponsible not to use it for something if I'm going to 
write about like cats, I can also write about my vagina, you know? Absolutely. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace, through a secure online platform, and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash made visible. That's betterhelp.com slash made visible. And now back to the show. So how have you navigated discussing this with friends at this point, especially those that you quote unquote hid it from previously? It's honestly something that I'm maybe too open about. I really don't think I'm too open, but sometimes I'm like, am I like my male lady? honestly knows about this stuff. My dentist knows about this stuff. So with the I know one time she came out to me and she was like, I saw that video where you did the Botox in your vagina. And I was like, great. (laughs) Excellent. Can I have my mail now? Do you have that catalog? I'm like, uh, okay, thank you, I guess. Um, but yeah, so with friends, it's like, Oh my God, I'm just, I just talk about it. And it, you know how people with invisible illnesses often refer to themselves as spoonies. Yes. Yeah. So like, I, you know, I'm not the only one who does this, but people who don't have it, I sometimes are like, they're four keys or whatever. So I have a lot of friends that are four <laughs> keys who don't have a chronic I illness. And it's like, you know, it can be sort of odd sometimes, but I feel like it's more about the other person not knowing what to say. So a lot of what I talk about is trying to educate people on like how to be supportive of people, because it's like, I don't need you to like, tell me, Hey man, it's going to be totally fine. Just stay cool and like stay positive. I just want you to be there and be like, yeah, it really fucking sucks that you live with this and I'm sorry. So that's what I've tried to just like talk to my friends about. But you know, I also have a lot of friends who are spoonies who have a chronic illness, whether it be endometriosis or something else. And like, it's so helpful as I'm sure you know, to have people who understand. So yeah, I'm just very open about it with everyone, friends included. And it feels so good to just say whatever the hell I feel about this thing that's happening every second of my life, you know? Like, why would I not talk about it? People talk about their hangovers, but I can't talk about how sex is painful for me or how I have a headache from my TMJ or whatever, you know? Why not? Yeah, I agree completely. And I think being honest with your friends and giving them feedback is so valuable because I think about the times where people are like, oh my God, I feel so bad for you, feel better. And I'm like, Oh, I hate that like sympathy moment. Like it doesn't help me in any way. My best friend sent me flowers a few years ago that said, dear Harper's lungs, we hate you. We love Harper. And it was like, yeah, that is the tone that I want. Like, this is really fucking annoying. And thank you for like recognizing the tone that this is how I live my life. Mm -hmm. And I don't need it to be like, oh, I feel so bad for you. You know? Yeah, totally. So, um, You've mentioned sex. 
tell me a little bit more about how this has affected relationships and you having sex at this point in your life. For the longest time, I honestly thought of myself as a person who couldn't have sex. And I've recently in the last 16 months or so changed how I talk about that because I think it's really detrimental. And it's also, you know, not inclusive. A lot of people have sex like millions of different ways. And just because they're not having penetration doesn't make it any less valid. And I had to tell myself the same thing because I used to always be like, I just can't have sex. Why would anyone want to date me? I can't have sex. And now I'm like, I can't have penetrative sex, but you can still go down on me and like eat my pussy, whatever, you know, like I talk about it very casually now, but I don't want to disregard the years of work that I had to put in in therapy and on my own, just like reframing the way that I thought about love relationships and dating in general. Dating was really shitty. when I was first dealing with these illnesses, it was like, I couldn't even have a man compliment me or tell me that he was attracted to me without fully going into panic mode and like having a panic attack and like much less have a guy even try to touch me or like put his hand on my arm or anything. But you know, I've gotten to the place now where I have had casual sex. I've had long-term relationships. I'm dating someone now And, you know, I don't have penetrative sex with them. It's still not something that I'm able to do. It's too painful, but it's honestly not even something I think about anymore. Like there's maybe like a 3% part of me when I'm intimate with people that is like, oh man, I wish that I could have their penis inside me. Like it's really not even a factor because it's like, I don't think of sex in that way anymore. And it's something that's painful for me. I think of it as like sexual preferences. Some people don't like toys. Some people don't do anal. Some people don't do this or that. I don't do penetration. And how do you have that conversation with your partners? These days, I'm very casual about it. Like the way that I just talked to you about it is pretty much the way that I present it. Like if I decide to be intimate with someone and they're in my bed or wherever the hell we are, the couch, I'll just be like, hey, just so you know, I don't do penetration. Or honestly, I might not even say it up front. We might just like start going if he tries to go for that. I'm just like, hey, I don't do that, but let's do something else. I'm just very casual about it because I learned the hard way that when I was really self-conscious about it or when I made a big deal about it, that they would feel weird about it and act a different way toward me. So now if I'm just like owning it and I'm just like, hey, this is the situation, you either are cool with it or like get the fuck out, I have a much better response. Have you been with people who have found your Instagram or seen any of these videos prior to dating you? Yes. So I was on dating apps like last summer for a while. And a lot of the dating apps like link your Instagram. It's like also, you know, you always Google someone. So it's like, I definitely had that situation. And I could never decide how I felt about it. On one hand, it was like, okay, cool. It's out in the open. Great. We don't really have to worry about that conversation. But on the other hand, it's like, it's something that I would like to tell people myself and figure out how I want to tell them and when I want to tell them. So it was good and bad. But you know, I definitely had some people who were like, some people were just weird about it. Like they, it was almost like this weird fetish for them where they were like, Oh, I bet I could make it happen for you. And I'm like, no, I don't think you understand. Like it's a medical condition. It's not like, because I haven't had good sex, you know, like, I know idiots. (laughs) So when did you start posting on Instagram and sort of building this platform for yourself separate from Buzzfeed? It just sort of happened organically. Like A couple of times I did these posts back in like 2014 or 15 articles. I always call them posts, but I I did articles um, where I was like, if we were honest on Instagram or if we were honest on Snapchat, and I would just use my own profiles because it was easy to just Photoshop for the purpose of the article. And so people started following me from those articles. And then from there, I was like, 
you know, I would continue to write about my vagina, endometriosis related issues, and people would follow me. And so it just sort of became an outlet for me. Like, I really like Instagram, despite the fact that it's owned by Facebook. And, you know, it just sort of happened organically, where I was just like, Oh, I'm having a bad day today. I'm just going to talk about it on Instagram. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't really use Facebook anymore. And that would be the other social platform that I would probably use if I was Mm going to talk about it. But it's just not like I just don't use it. And like my friends don't use it. And like no one I really know, like actively uses it outside of like my mom and her friends. Yeah, it's definitely targeted more towards older people these days. They're the ones spending their time on it. Mentioning your mom is a good point. So what is your relationship with your mom as it relates to your health? Is she supportive of you? Is she aware of all that you're doing? Yes, honestly, I am so lucky. The way that my parents have stepped up, read everything that I've written, watched everything that I've been in, they just constantly listen to the things that I'm saying or writing. And, you know, they actively try to be as accommodating for me as they can. They know everything about it. And, you know, I'm really proud of my dad in particular, who is a farmer. You know, he's always been open to talking about periods, but with the issues that I have going on, it's much more involved than just the period. And it's like, I will just call him up after a doctor's appointment and be like, I had to use a child size speculum today at the gynecologist because it was too painful or like, whatever, because it's so nonchalant for me. And he is so great. And just you know, it's like the bar is very low for men, but I really appreciate my parents, but especially my dad in general for how progressive he's been with me and the way that I talk about my illnesses. And like, they're both extremely proud of me, which makes me feel really good because, you know, I talk about masturbation and I talk about sex. It's not easy, I'm sure at times for parents to hear, but they're just proud that I'm able to talk about it now and that, you know, I'm doing something about it. We're trying to really, really important and so special that you have that because there are certainly so many men out there that can't even handle periods. Like you pull out a tampon and they're like, oh, you have your period. I mean, it is the most basic thing that women deal with and they still can't handle it. So you mentioned to me that you don't show the days when you really, really give up because you feel like you would be letting people down on Instagram. Can you talk a little bit more about this and what it's like for you? Yes. So I definitely share a lot of my life on Instagram, but I have days where I truly feel like I hit rock bottom, where I just feel like I can't go on with this stuff. I have no ounce of positivity. I have nothing witty to share. I have no insights to share. I just feel fucking defeated. I feel hopeless. And in those moments, I don't feel like I want to share that or that I should share that with people on Instagram because I worry because I get a lot of messages from people who are like, you know, I look up to you, you give me so much comfort, like that type of thing. And I just, I don't know, it sounds stupid, but it's like, I feel like I would be letting them down. I feel like I'm letting myself down when I have those moments. And it's like, I'm not being honest about it. So it's like, I want to share it when I'm talking about it, sitting here talking to you about it. I'm like, that is important. That is what I should be sharing those moments. And sometimes I feel like I do a little bit But I really do have moments where I can't get out of bed. I don't go to work. I don't do anything. I fight with my friends. I like pick fights with everyone in my life because I don't feel worthy of loving. Like that's the shit that I'm not sharing when it gets so, so dark. Um, I did try and share it a bit in my book that felt easier to talk about it because it's so far out. Like it's not even coming out until 2020. And I wrote it 
you know, this summer and finished it this fall. And it felt easier because it wasn't like an instant reaction of people being able to see it and judge me. So yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard because I, I want I don't want anyone else to give up, you know? And it's hard saying that because it's like, of course I understand why someone would want to. I feel that a lot. But I don't want anyone else to feel that because of something that I say. Yeah, I mean I think the big thing here, number one, is that saying should is like there's nothing you should be doing. You don't owe it to anybody. You can do whatever you want. It's your life, your body. But I think that there's value in seeing those dark days if you are willing to go there with sharing it with people, because similar to hiding your illness and realizing, oh my God, it's so valuable to share it. Sharing those dark days may be a little bit brighter if other people can relate to it and you get that sort of, oh, I'm dealing with this also. And I think your approach on Instagram is really, really incredible of like, this is what I'm dealing with. Here's my day to day. Here's where I need to smoke weed. Here's where I can't go to work. Here, you know, all of these day-to-day things are so, so relatable. So obviously do what's best for you and maybe putting the book out there will help do that. But I think the big thing here obviously is listening to yourself and knowing what's best for you. So what made you write this book and what message do you hope it conveys? So there's a lot of books on the market that people have given me over the years about my conditions. And they were always like from doctors or like how to have not painful sex or like how to cure yourself or whatever. Like there's value in those books. I don't want to take away from that. I'm sure they've helped lots of people. So that's great. But I don't want that when I'm talking about this. You know, I don't want some doctor being like this study says this. I don't give a shit what the study says. I just want to talk about how much this sucks and like be relatable. You know, like I just wanted a space that wasn't like, here's a bow and how to fix yourself. And oh, if you were just doing this thing, like, no matter what the book says, even if it's like, you know, you could be doing all this and endometriosis still doesn't have a cure. It always feels like I'm doing something wrong if I read stuff like that. And I know I'm not alone in that just because the way that endometriosis is treated by doctors. So I just wanted something that was different than that and just felt like, you know, you can read it and be like, okay, cool. I'm not alone. It sucks. But like, we're just going to keep going, whatever. So we have no choice, but it's cool. We're going to laugh about it and make a joke of it and like, you know, be with each other in our misery. And it's something that I wish that I had when I was diagnosed. So if nothing else, I just hope that anyone who reads it can find one moment in the book or one part of the book that makes them feel less alone. And that would be great. I love that. Thanks for doing that. What advice do you have for someone who is dealing with some of the symptoms that you were dealing with and not knowing where to navigate what to do? My advice would be, A, remember that doctors work for you, but B, try to have backup. I try not to go to doctor's appointments alone now because no matter how much I've worked on it in therapy or no matter how much I've grown as a person, it's really, really difficult to push back on a doctor. And with a lot of the stuff surrounding endometriosis, getting a diagnosis, as I said earlier, you have to have a surgery. A lot of the treatments are like, you know, different doctors, physical therapists, whatever, but you have to have referrals for that stuff often. So my advice would be, yeah, to just remember the doctor works for you and that you don't have to listen to their bullshit and you don't have to, you know, if they're not helping you, like you don't have to see them anymore but also uh, try and take someone with you if at all possible, because as much as you remind yourself of the things I said first, like once you get in the room, it's very hard. So. Yeah, I agree. I think having someone there is really important. 
So really good luck with this upcoming surgery and obviously the launch of this book. I'm so glad we had the opportunity to chat today. How can people learn more about you, the book, and follow your story? Yes. So you can learn more about me by just visiting my Instagram, which is at Laura, L-A-R-A-E Parker, Laura E. Parker. And um, the book will be out in fall of 2020. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.